Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 14 and go through verse 20. And I'm going to do something I rarely do this morning. I'm going to take this whole passage in one sermon, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to move on to Revelation chapter 15. So mark this day down, uh, that this actually happens from time to time. The past two Sundays, we've been considering verses 6 through 13 of this, of this chapter. Under the title, God's Final Call. Because in that chapter, in these verses, God sends forth angelic messengers throughout the earth right before the final judgment, right before he pours out his wrath upon sin, more terrifying than any other judgment that has come before. But in his wrath, God remembers mercy. And we saw that he calls upon the earth to turn to him, to worship him, to glorify him, to fear him and to be saved and not to give their hearts to the rulers of the earth that Satan has raised up in the previous chapter, chapter 13, the beast and the false prophet, they're called, brought forth and powered by Satan, this unholy trinity. And then the Lord speaks himself to believers, encouraging them once again to endure to the end. So there are two choices inerrant in these texts. We either turn to the Lord and are saved or we reject God and follow those who are going to destruction. And as we continue further into chapter 14, the implications of that choice are all too clear as the final judgment of God arrives. And that is what we are considering this morning in this passage, starting in verse 14. So look with me here, starting in verse 14. John says, Then I looked, and behold... A white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe, fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out, of the, uh, from under the altar, came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice of the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. I was in junior high school in 1980. But I remember the spring semester, we were all fascinated with the news we were hearing about a volcano on American soil that might actually erupt. Now, this is a, not a nice thing if you live near the volcano, but when it's on the other side of the, of the, of the country, it, it's a really fascinating thing. And one of the things that fueled my attention here is that I had written a report on 
the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii. And along with that report, I had built a paper mache volcano, if you've ever heard one of, or seen one of those, with sort of this core in the middle, and you put a bunch of baking soda in it, and you uh, mix vinegar with orange food coloring, and if you pour that in, it overflows like the magma coming out of the, the volcano all the way down the side. I had so much fun with that thing uh, for a long time. And so I was had this sort of fascination with, with these volcanoes. And I was already into them when the reports began to appear on the news that Mount St. Helens in Washington State may erupt. And indeed, it did erupt in a big way. But not the way I had imagined with the molten lava blasting out of the top and this river of magma flowing down the sides. Instead, Mount St. Helens built up pressure from inside and there were earthquakes that began to happen daily and then the mountain began to smoke and it, it began to bulge on one side. And then on April 18, 1980, the volcano finally exploded out the side, destroying millions of trees, peeling the soil away from the earth and sending a plume of ash into the air for nine hours. My family and I visited Mount St. Helens National Park when our kids were young, and it had been a little more than 25 years since this eruption. But the view around Mount St. Helens still caused us to gape in disbelief. As we drove closer to the mountain, the scene of the rich vegetation there in, in Washington State with the tall green pines, it all began to thin. And soon the landscape looked very gray and barren. This is 25 years later. And all of the trees were lying on the ground in a singular direction, still rotting where they had been blown over by the blast years before. You see, when Mount St. Helens erupted for eight up miles, everything was obliterated through sheer force of the blast with unimaginable heat. Then about 19 miles, all of the trees blown o- were blown over or they were snapped in half. And remember, the trees in Washington State, they're not these little ones that you might see around here in the woods. These are big trees that were just blown away or snapped in half. This is not anybody we know in the picture, by the way. Uh, That's not Rena or anything. Uh, I don't know who that is, but there she is. And after the 19-mile mark, trees were singed by the heat and buried by debris for miles and miles. Leading up to the blast, Uh, the more uh, geologists began to fear that the mountain may actually erupt. Officials began to warn people who live nearby, you've got to get out. Evacuate. It might go up. It might be an eruption. And, And soon, a more urgent warning was issued that they really believed the eruption was imminent. Now, what does it mean that something is imminent? It means that no one can say for certain when something is going to happen. But there is no doubt that it is going to happen. So the governor of Washington ordered an evacuation. Some people refused to leave. One of them was a man who became a celebrity. All over the world, actually. His name was Harry Truman. He owned a lodge on Spirit Lake about a mile or so from the mountain. This is actually a picture of Spirit Lake, the way it looks today, with these trees still rotting in the water, the trees from the blast. Harry Truman was warned again and again 
to get out. But he all but scoffed at the warning. This mountain isn't going to hurt me. I've lived here for so many years. And they asked him if the daily earthquakes were bothering him. He said, no, but the shaking keeps me awake at night. So I moved my bed to the basement is what he said. And he was talking to reporters who would come in and interview him. And when an earthquake happened, he would show off by telling them, I, could, I can feel that one. I know that's a, point, that's a four on the Richter scale, or that's a five on the Richter scale. Then nobody could verify that he was right. But he could say, I could, I could tell by the feeling of it and by uh, how hard the sign was swinging outside that was advertising his lodge. And he was nervous about the possibility of an eruption. But he figured he'd have time to get away if anything happened. I mean, he imagined a volcano going up and then he would just drive away and get to safety. He had a shelter prepared in case things happened quickly. People around the world began to write to him words of encouragement, some telling him he's doing the right thing. Others were saying, you've got to leave. He would receive letters from school children writing who were nervous for him, telling him he needed to get somewhere safe. When Mount St. Helens erupted, his lodge and the lake on which he lived was obliterated with a cataclysmic power and buried under 15 feet of debris. They say that Truman's body was probably vaporized almost before his mind even had time to register pain. Now, why wouldn't this man listen to the warnings? Well, there are a number of reasons. It seems by all accounts that he was very attached to his lodge on Spirit Lake. He had lived there a long time. He hated the idea that it might be destroyed. And he didn't want to leave it. He and his wife, who had already passed away a few years earlier, had built many memories there. It was all he knew. Even though he was nervous about the possibility of danger, he clung to what he had. He put the idea of destruction out of his mind. But none of these reasons were enough to save him. Because finally, the hour came when everything he had poured his life into and was clinging to was obliterated. And I think we can respond in the same way to something much more eternal. When we read texts like we read here in Revelation chapter 14, Throughout the prophecy of Revelation, remember, God has demonstrated that he is in complete control of heaven and earth. And that even the most powerful satanic forces set against God are but a mere breath against the omnipotence and power of the Creator. And this God has promised that judgment is coming upon sin. And he has even been demonstrating throughout Revelation that final judgment is coming. The earth is being shocked with earthquakes and thunders and lightnings and cataclysmic events that are destroying the ecosystem of the planet. We've seen this before in Revelation. It's like the creation in reverse. And throughout this time, God is sending witnesses into the world to tell of coming judgment, to call people to repent. And if that is not enough, in the passage we just read in chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, God gives this final call to turn to him and find mercy before the last and terrible judgment comes. You would think, you would think if people were living in that day, that they would begin to wake up and realize that whatever they're holding on to, 
whatever hopes they may entertain for escape are futile. And to flee instead into the waiting, welcoming arms of the Savior for safety. But many obviously do not. They are holding on to some other hope. They're putting it out of their minds. All the terrible things that have happened on the earth, the beast and the false prophet, they'll make it better. All of that will go away. There's nothing more terrible to come. And I've survived this long. I'm sure I'll survive longer. But that strategy was doomed to fail. Because as our text reveals, the great day of God's judgment finally arrives. I think this is the key to this text that we're reading. Where it says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And down in verse 18, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. The picture of the harvest represents the end time when the people of the earth are transitioned from this life that we know on planet earth to life with the visible, real presence of Jesus Christ. In other words, they will pass from this life to the next to meet the Lord, either to meet him at the judgment seat for believers or to meet him at the great white throne of judgment to be cast forever into the lake of fire. And in this text before us, Revelation 14, 14 through 20, the hour has come. This is the announcement. The waiting is over. And then in chapters 15 and 16, we're going to witness the final terrible judgments on the earth. In chapters 17 and 18, John describes the impact of those judgments. And in chapter 19, the Lord breaks through the clouds, breaks through the sky, I should say, and comes to the earth, conquering his enemies and establishing his kingdom. These are literally the last two paragraphs in the book of Revelation before it all goes down. This is the official announcement. The time has come. Now, in that announcement, John describes two harvests. And these harvests warn that every person, young or old, rich or poor, ruler or servant, I don't care who you are, every person must be ready at that moment to stand before the Lord at the final judgment because that day will certainly come. The judgment is imminent. Are you ready for this? I mean, really? Are you ready to stand before the Lord? Or are you putting it out of your mind? Are you filling your thoughts with other things? I think a lot of people live their lives with with a little uncomfortable thought that occurs to them every once in a while that they should reckon with God. That they should take the existence of the Lord into account. Prepare to meet Him. But then an internal argument ensues. I've got time for that still. I need to get all of this other stuff in my life figured out first. And then I'll take care of my relationship with God. Or I have things I want to do first. I want to make sure I have time to do them. And yes, I want to meet the Lord someday. That would be wonderful. But I've got time for that. I I want to die and go to be with the Lord. But I don't want to do it today. There's some other things going on. They have to take place. I'll keep putting it off. That is very foolish. Because Jesus said, 
what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. He also says, what shall a man give in return for his soul? We're risking everything to think this way. Here, Jesus also warns in verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. If you keep putting it off, if you keep ignoring the questions about God in your life, you will lose your life. Because Jesus says in the same passage, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus. He's called the same thing in Revelation 14 we just read. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Are you ready? We are in grave danger. We need to get this figured out first. We need to get our relationship with Jesus Christ figured out first, and then decide by God's grace what to do next. That's the order it ought to go in. And these verses in Revelation 14 dramatically remind us of this truth. They're not merely speaking to unbelievers here. Some of you may have that impression that this is all about the judgment for unbelievers, but no, there are actually two harvests in this text. The first is the grain harvest of the righteous in verses 14 through 16. And the second is the grape harvest of the wicked in verses 17 through 20. If you have never come to Christ for salvation... You need to recognize your need for forgiveness from sin, from a holy God, and turn to Christ and trust in his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection before the hour comes. But if you know you are a believer in Christ, you also must prepare to meet the Lord. That's what the New Testament tells us. Every person has to be ready to stand before the Lord at the final judgment. Paul is speaking to believers when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, because the grain harvest of the righteous is coming. But Paul is speaking of unbelievers when he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. And it's talking about the same day that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 14. This is the day of the grape harvest of the wicked. Both of those judgments are represented at the end of Revelation chapter 14 by these two harvests. And looking more closely at them this morning in our time, they call us to take a closer look at what we may have been ignoring in our lives and make certain that we are living as if this hour is about to come. So let's consider them this morning. First of all, let's consider the grain harvest of the righteous and spend just a few minutes unpacking the text. In verse 14, if you'll look there, John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle 
in his hands. The one like the Son of Man is a reference to Jesus Christ. That's always who it refers to in Revelation when this phrase is used. In fact, Jesus liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels. He just referred to himself that way in Matthew 16. And Daniel, describing this judgment in Daniel 7.13, says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, notice here that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is seated on a white cloud in verse 14. This is not an incidental reference. Nothing in Scripture is incidental. Look at every phrase. Look at every preposition. Nothing is incidental. Because you notice, this is how Jesus continues to be described in the text. Look at verse 15. Calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth. Three times it mentions Jesus Christ on a cloud. It's the primary way he's described in these verses, in these first few verses, as one seated on a cloud. Now, why is Jesus sitting here on a white cloud? Well, it might help you to realize that sitting down, this verb that's used here, can mean all kinds of things in the Greek language in the ancient world, depending on the context in which the verb was used. Jesus often sat down when he taught. People sat down to listen. Matthew was sitting in the tax booth when Jesus saw him. The blind man in John 9 was sitting down, begging, and so forth. All using the same Greek word we find here, to sit down. But there's a kind of sitting, I haven't mentioned this yet, a kind of sitting that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 26, 64, when he is being put on trial by the Jewish leaders. The trial of Jesus went through the night and the high priest was very frustrated. You remember this, because Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So finally the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. As if they didn't know he was saying that yet. And Jesus' reply was emphatic. He said, yes, because he said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, this is a regal sitting. It's sitting like a judge. Jesus isn't riding on a cloud for style. He is enthroned on the cloud like a king that he is. The cloud shows Jesus to be transcendent, high above all that he has made, exalted, powerful, mysterious, a sight that should cause those upon the earth to tremble. And notice that Jesus, the Son of Man, also wears a golden crown on his head. This isn't a diadem, not this, this steel crown on his head, or this, this, this golden crown that's, that's hard. It, it's actually the word stephanos. It, it's, a, it's a laurel wreath, the wreath you would receive if you won. And, and you would receive it as a symbol of your victory. And the sharp sickle that he holds is like his scepter, symbolizing his power and sovereignty over all peoples and nations. This is not Jesus in his first coming, carried in the womb of a virgin on a donkey to Bethlehem, or borne up by a manger in his birth, or sitting on a lowly donkey riding into Jerusalem, or being placed on a cross. This is Jesus in his second coming, high and lifted up and greatly exalted, coming to judge, coming to finish what he had started. Fearsome and awesome. And in verse 15, it says that another angel comes out of the heavenly temple 
in this temple we've been seeing in Revelation. And he calls to Jesus enthroned on the cloud. And notice what he says. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. Now, I don't know if that struck you as odd. That this angel has the authority to tell Jesus that the hour has come and to reap the harvest of the righteous souls. But one thing to consider is that the angel comes from the temple. And this is the throne room of the Father in Revelation. Surrounded by the living creatures, the four living creatures and 24 elders, and then all of the myriads of angels worshiping him. This is where this messenger comes from. And that's what an angel is. He's a messenger. He's obviously sent from the Father to tell the Son, the hour is come, now reap. I can't help but thinking that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, concerning this hour, Jesus said, no one knows when it is coming, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, I imagine Jesus knows by now. He's, I think he's speaking in his humanity there in Matthew chapter 24. But I still think it's really interesting that here the Father sends word to the Son with this angelic messenger. Now the hour has come. So Jesus, it says, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. This is a very intense idea. Because the verb normally used for operating a sickle for harvest is not the verb that's used here. Now, stay with me for just a second. Usually, if somebody is speaking in Greek and they want to talk about harvesting with a sickle, and you've seen a sickle before, he would say, send the sickle. In fact, you look at verse 15. The ESV puts it, put forth the sickle. But it, it's, it's, the, it's the Greek word for send, pempo, for some of you who actually probably have your Greek New Testament there right now and are investigating this. Uh, pempo, it means to send. It's a very common word. Send the sickle. That's what a Greek person would say. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is comparing the kingdom harvest to a har- uh, the kingdom that's coming to a harvest. And he says, send the, sinkle, uh, send the sickle. See, I need to slow down here. Uh, send the sickle. And he uses a different word for send. He uses the word apostello. That's where we get our word apostle from, which means sent one. So he uses send the sickle with another word for send. So that's the way you would speak of sickling if you were harvesting. But when Jesus uses his sickle to reap the earth, there's an uncommon word that's used here for sickling. It's a common word in Greek that is not used in this context. It's simply the word to cast or to throw. Balo is the word. Jesus throws his sickle onto the earth. He casts it. Now, he doesn't let go of it, but it's, it's this, this violent sweeping of the sickle that's in view here. With this divine force that reaps believers all over the world, bringing them at last to himself and on to the judgment bar. This expression heightens the urgency and finality of this hour that has come. It is the final harvest. Now, some of you may be wondering, why do I think that this reaping of the grain harvest is a reaping of believers and not unbelievers? I really haven't made that argument yet. I want to give you three reasons really quick why I, I think this really has believers in view. First of all, we know that the Lord, our Savior, our friend in the true sense of the word, our shepherd, is also our judge. We as believers must answer to Jesus for the way we have lived our lives for him on this earth. I already mentioned to you 2 Corinthians 5.10 where Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
But we could also consider Hebrews 4.13, which is also written to believers. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And notice the author includes himself in this claim. We will stand before Christ and he will already know everything about us. And we could take time to really look at this passage. It's a fascinating passage. I can only mention it this morning. But Paul, again, speaking to believers in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Three times there, he says, there's going to be a great revealing of what's really been going on in our lives as believers. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We are not answering for sin at this judgment. Our sin has already been answered for on the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the point of the cross. Christ is reckoning for our sins. He is covering our sins. He is, he is casting them out. And the text does not suggest that at the judgment, all of our sin will be on display for all the world to see. I remember at least one evangelist who preached that when I was a kid, that every bad thing we ever did or thought would be on a big movie screen of sorts and everybody was going to find out. And that thought put us on our best behavior for at least five or six minutes. But... There is no biblical reason for this strange idea that before we spend eternity with the Lord, we have to go to this great day of shame. But we will give an account to the Lord himself who loves us and died for us and welcomes us to the throne. It will still be a very frightening thing in the best sense of that word. Who could stand before the Lord of glory to say what we have done for him without our knees shaking, our resurrected knees shaking before him, how we are faithfully built upon the foundation of Christ that was laid by the apostles, and rewards will be given on that day. So we should not be surprised if we see the sickle of the Lord thrown into the field to harvest believers for the purpose of bringing them before his judgment bar for their reward. But there's another reason this reaping of the grain is likely a harvest of the righteous. In the New Testament, believers are often referred to as first fruits or as a field to be harvested. In fact, if you look at uh, this same chapter back in the beginning of chapter 14, the 144,000 have been redeemed from mankind, it says, as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And the word first fruits refers to the first reaping of the grain. Add to this Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, or as it says in the updated translations, the wheat and the weeds in the Gospels, where both the wheat, the believers, and the, the tares or the, the weeds are harvested at the end of time. And you have Jesus' words in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, where he says the fields are white unto harvest, referring to people who are ready to hear the Gospel and to be saved. So the grain harvest in Revelation 14 is consistent with these other New Testament passages that liken believers to a field. And finally, another striking reason I think that these verses refer to believers is the fact that there is no judgment metaphor in these verses like you have in the second part 
of this passage. When the grapes are harvested in the second harvest later in the text, they are trampled or destroyed. And that's the way it is whenever the metaphor is used for harvesting unbelievers. There is always a burning or some kind of judgment in view. When the branches are taken away in John 15 because they don't abide in the vine, remember? They are cast out and gathered together and burned. In Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist preaches his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, the believers. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And in Matthew 13.24-30, when Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, when harvest time comes, the wheat is gathered into the master's barn, but it says the tares are bound into bundles to be burned. But there is no judgment like that here in these verses. The Son of Man throws his sickle and reaps, and there is no fiery judgment for those who are taken in this harvest because these are the Lord's people. He gathers them himself. We are gathered into his barn. We are not judged like non-believers. In fact, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's a little reminder of that, isn't there? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says that we should judge ourselves. We, we, should, we should be policing ourselves and, and coming before the Lord and, and, and making sure that we are walking with the Lord like He wants us to. Because if, if we're doing that, the Lord doesn't have to discipline us. And He reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are not condemned with the world. That's final judgment. He says when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. The world of those who do not know God, who have rejected Christ, who are going to experience ultimate condemnation for all eternity. But we will, though we do not face eternal judgment, stand before the Lord. We will offer an account of our service to Him. What we did while living on this earth, and this text urges us to be prepared for that hour, to make that the main thing in our lives that we are ready to meet the Lord before we go on to these other things that by God's grace He wants us to do. Let's make sure we know our relationship with the Lord is where it needs to be. Now, let's consider the second harvest. After the grain harvest of the righteous, there is also the grape harvest of the wicked. The metaphor describing this judgment, if we really think about it, is palpable. It's dreadful. It's appalling. It's literally a bloodbath of judgment. John describes, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And again, this angel is coming from the temple. It's a divine messenger sent from God. Only this time, the angel himself has the sickle. It's interesting to me. The Lord reaps his own people and gathers them into his barn. But a powerful angel is sent to harvest those who will not turn to God. God and, and, the, and the Lamb are using the angels as their instruments. And in verse 18, it says, another angel come, uh, came out from the altar, and this angel is identified as the angel who has authority over fire. Now, this might sound a little strange to us at first, but it's really not. If, if we had time this morning, we'd go back and review what he says in chapter 6 and what he says in chapter 8, because this is the angel from chapter 8 who appears at the altar of sacrifice and the altar on which the incense is offered in the heavenly temple. 
And we learn in Revelation 6 that there are souls of martyred saints underneath that altar of sacrifice where the blood drips down from the sacrifices. There are those who are martyred for the witness of the gospel and they're crying out. Remember this? They're crying out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? When are we going to be vindicated? How long is it going to take? And in chapter 8, their prayers in chapter 6 begin to be answered. As this angel in charge of fire responds by taking the burning coals off of the altar of sacrifice and hurling them onto the earth to begin the judgment to come. This appears to be that same angel. The angel that was in charge of the fire and judgment. And he commands the other angel with a sickle in verse 18 with a loud voice, put in your sickle. Same word. Send the sickle. That's the way he would talk about it. And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for the grapes are right. So in verse 19, just like Jesus Christ, this angel threw in his sickle and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great, great wine press of the wrath of God. Now this is a typical wine press where there would be an upper compartment where the grapes would be put and they would be trampled underfoot and the, the juice from the grapes would run down into this other compartment so that the wine would be collected. So here we find this horrific image of souls put into the wine press of God's judgment and trampled down so that blood overflows from that great vat in an unprecedented amount of bloodshed and carnage. This is probably a reference to the coming scene in chapter 19 where Jesus Christ returns and all of his enemies are against him. Those who hate him gathered against him and Jesus slays them all. And in Revelation 19.21, it says that all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Verse 20 says that blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 Stadia. There's a lot of discussion about what the 1600 stadia means. That's a little over 180 miles. Roughly the distance from the south to the north of the land of Israel where Christ is going to return. So if this refers to that day when Christ appears to conquer his enemies, it means, as Grant Osborne says in his commentary, that it is a picture of the greatest slaughter in history covering the entire holy land in blood. And we should notice that it says the wine press was trodden outside the city. That's very interesting. Maybe the city of Jerusalem is in view. Christ is likely returning at the Mount of Olives, right? If so, this is ironic justice. Because the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 12, that when Jesus was crucified, it was outside the city, outside the gate. Remember that? That's because as part of your suffering, those who crucified you wanted you to know that you are completely cut off from your society. You are completely cut off from the city. Crucified, not among your people, but apart from them, outside the gate. That's where you were crucified. And Jesus Christ was crucified outside the gate. And here, those who are set against Christ, who would crucify him again if they could. They are judged in the same way. They are cut off from those who will enter the kingdom in a great slaughter, separated from true life with Christ forever. This is the judgment 
that awaits. It is going to happen. It is for real. The reaping of the righteous to stand before the Lord and the reaping of the wicked to be condemned by the Lord. It is the great day of reckoning for both saints and sinner. And we are not certain exactly when it is going to happen. But it will happen. The hour will come. The final judgment is imminent. Are you ready? Have you put your faith in Christ, turning from your sin and clinging to Him for salvation? Are you living for the Lord, seeking His will, striving to know Him, to do His will first in your life? These verses call us to be ready. I think we need to face them head on. We need to be honest with ourselves about the state of our hearts before God. These verses call us to ask, what are we clinging to besides Christ? What is so important? What is so fulfilling? What is so urgent that God can afford to wait in light of this imminent hour? Father, we...